Hi everyone, welcome to episode 9 of our Vested Finance podcast. My name is Kaihan. I'm an editor at Vested, calling in from Singapore. My co-host today is Darwin Arifin, a co-founder at Vested, who is recording from the US. Great to have you here today, Darwin. Thanks, Kai. To our listeners, thanks again for joining us this week. All right, Kai, what are we discussing today? We'll be discussing the impact of the US elections, and we'll briefly talk about ARPU, or average revenue per user. But first, the material in this podcast is for information purposes only. It does not represent the opinions of vested finance and is not intended to be investment advice. We recommend you to consult with a financial advisor before committing to any financial decisions. Now, let's begin with the most important topic of the session, the US elections. Biden has won it, and honestly, it's been quite a saga, one that has gripped not only the US, but also kept the rest of the world on edge for days on end. I myself had very many sleepless nights, constantly refreshing my phone screen to check for updates. Yeah, same here. Many days of constantly refreshing my newsfeed, a lot of anxiety. You know, the funny thing is, the counts and the electoral vote is what it is, and Biden won the popular vote by several millions. But what is nail-biting is the order the information is revealed, right? Because the votes were cast during or before the election. They're all just sitting there in a room if they're mail-in votes. But if it's in-person votes, it's counted the same day. It's just that some states choose not to because political reasons, Pennsylvania namely, because it's Republican-controlled, not to count any of these ballots until election date. So that's why it has taken so long. Kind of trickled out this information. In, in hindsight, it could have been a lot faster. But anyways, I'm on a tangent. Now that we have clarity on who won the election, we can speculate on what will happen in the near term. At least in today's podcast, we will be narrowly talking about economic policies and potential impacts on investing. Although the impact on social justice reform, immigration, and U.S. standing in the world with the new Biden administration, these are arguably equally or more important. Let's take a step back for a moment. For our listeners who are abroad, primer about this election. In this most recent U.S. election, the control of three bodies of the U.S. government is at stake. One is the executive branch. The second is Congress, which is divided into two chambers. So the first, the U.S. presidency, Joe Biden, has been elected the 46th president of the United States. Now, despite unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud by the Trump administration and the possibilities of recounts in two states, specifically Wisconsin and Georgia, it is unlikely that the outcome will change. Biden's lead in vote count is insurmountable. The second body is the U.S. Senate. For the remainder of 2020, the Republicans will hold on to the Senate. In January 2021, a runoff election will be carried out for two senator seats in the state of Georgia. What all these means is that if the Democrats win these two seats, then the Senate will be evenly divided between the two parties. And then the new vice president, Kamala Harris, will be the tiebreaker, which then would give the Democrats control. So these two runoff elections are the Democrats' last hope to regain control of the Senate, at least until the midterm election 2022. And then the third, the U.S. House of Representatives. Even though they lost several seats, the Democrats will hold on to the control of the House. This ultimately means, at least in the near term, what we know so far is that the Democrats will hold the presidency and the House, but they do not have the Senate. So it's a split government. Thanks for the summary, Darwin. As a refresher, could you share with our listeners what a Biden win means? 
Okay, there are a bunch of things that Biden wants to do. Some he may not be able to do because the Democrats do not control the Senate, while others he can do quite quickly with executive orders. So first, on the tax side of things, Biden promised to raise tax for the rich. So his definition of the rich is Americans making more than $400,000 a year. He also wants to raise U.S. corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. This proposal would reduce corporate profits by about $130 billion a year. On the government spending side of things, he plans to use additional tax revenue to increase spending on green energy, healthcare, and infrastructure, and also to provide tax relief on lower and middle income taxpayers. So he plans to spend roughly about $3.2 trillion over the next decade, about $750 billion for healthcare, about the same to improve education, and in the bulk of it, almost $2 trillion is on renewable energy and achieving net zero emissions by 2050. And in order to do this, he plans to invest in modernizing infrastructure, especially on electric vehicles. He wants to accelerate public adoption of electric vehicles. He may give out subsidies so that people switch their cars faster to electric vehicles. And also investments in renewable power generations and storage. Now, increased government spending is important to accelerate U.S. economic recovery. And Biden plans on spending big money, which will have a significant trickle-down effect into the sectors I mentioned above. As you mentioned, it's likely that when Biden takes office, Congress will be divided. The Senate will be controlled by the Republicans, although we won't know for certain until the end of January. Do you think that Biden can actually enact these economic policies? Well, with a divided Congress, it will be tough for Biden to get the tax policies to be enacted. It is likely that it's not going to be next year's focus anyways. The next year's focus is to get COVID under control and then restore economic activities. These are probably two top two priorities for the new administration. So no tax increase maybe two years down the road and then depends on who controls the Senate. In the near term, it's unlikely. No tax increase might be good for the stock market. But the downside of the gridlock is that it slows down the passing of another stimulus package, which the U.S. economy probably needs. Biden will not take office until the end of January. And it's still to be seen if we are going to see a stimulus package by the end of this year or not during the lame duck term of the Trump administration. And generally, this is not good for economic recovery and market more broadly. As of today, new COVID cases being reported in the U.S. are still at all-time high more than 126,000 cases a day, which is actually 80% higher than the peak in July. So the new stimulus package will be sorely needed, and especially if we enter into another prolonged lockdown. Am I right in saying that despite the gridlock, there are things that the Biden administration can accomplish relatively quickly using executive orders? Yeah, Biden can shift U.S. policies quite quickly using executive orders on three things. Immigration, climate change, and international trade. So he can enact new immigration policies, especially around immigration of skilled workers, skilled talent. And I foresee that it will likely be easier to get and extend H-1Bs now if you're a skilled foreign worker working in the U.S. I came to the U.S. under the Bush administration, and as an international student, I remember how difficult it was to get a student visa back then. And then the policies shifted quite rapidly under the Obama administration. So who the president is and their policies really affects your life as an immigrant. Number two, Biden can also rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. And with the plan, fiscal spending on renewable energy, these two factors can be a boon for the renewable energy sector. He couldn't rejoin the accord using executive powers, but the fiscal spending component, the aforementioned $2 trillion in renewable energy spending, will have to go through Congress, which may take longer now that the government is split. 
He has also talked about recommitting to a modified TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. So TPP is a trade agreement between 12 countries, including Canada, Mexico, Chile, Japan, and other countries in Southeast Asia, which covers about 40% of the global economy. But most notably, it excludes China. So this is a new coalition to compete with the emerging superpower that is China. If the United States decides to rejoin the TPP, this could be a factor for emerging market economies, more trades, especially to the Southeast Asian region. Now, I think the confluence of all these factors, rising COVID, the need for more fiscal stimulus, and the Fed keeping interest rates really low, which is actually negative in real terms, are weakening the dollar. You can already see this in the previous weeks. And historically, when the dollar weakens, riskier assets such as stock goes up, exports-driven sectors, and emerging market economies perform better. What about the government's approach on regulating big tech? A divided government is probably good for big tech. Both parties actually want more accountability for the content published on social media platforms. But what they want out of the social media censorship is different. The Democrats want YouTube and Facebook to censor more to limit the spread of misinformation and what they consider fake news, while the Republicans feel that their voices are being muted by the tech giants, and therefore they want less censorship. So despite evidence to the contrary, actually, this means that both parties will be at an impasse in enacting new regulations and policies around this issue, which means business as usual for YouTube, Facebook, and Google. Personally, I think that regardless of who the president is, the U.S. relationship with China will never be the same. That's it. I think that even though Biden is still going to be tough on China, there will be more of a splash of tact and diplomacy. Yeah, I completely agree with that. A hard stance against China is actually the rare issue that both parties agree on. One of the big complaints against China is that it often uses access to its vast domestic market to gain leverage in negotiations or force technology transfers. Just a little backstory, due to investment restrictions in some industries in China, many international firms, if they want to access the Chinese market, they have to operate through joint ventures with Chinese partners where the international firm cannot hold a controlling stake. And in many cases, the international firms were forced to hand over their intellectual properties to their partners that later became competitors. This is especially true in joint ventures with state-owned enterprises. Now, I want to note that although China is the most recent country to do this, the practice is decades old. Japan used to use the same playbook in the 80s. You can actually read more about this in Joe Studwell's book, How Asia Works. This tactic has been employed by many previously emerging economies, such as Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, to accelerate domestic technology development. The thing is, for most companies, users in the U.S. are still the most valuable. The U.S. market is large, and the purchasing power of its consumers is one of the highest in the world. Consumers in the U.S. spend a lot because they contribute about 70% of the U.S. GDP. So we decided to summarize the U.S. average annual revenue per user, or annual ARPU, which is a fancy way of saying how much does a company make on a per user basis. So we looked at different technology companies that serve U.S. consumers directly. If you're interested in seeing the full list, you can see our blog, which we'll link in the show notes. But briefly, Snap makes about $9 a user a year. Spotify from the premium makes about $20. Facebook makes $159 per user per year in US and Canada. Netflix makes $161. Google makes $300. And Amazon Prime makes more than $1,500. Yeah, I saw that. What's astounding to me is the ARPU of Amazon. Yeah, it's quite an accomplishment, and it really is a testament of the business. 
Also remember that Amazon does this with a very large user base. There are more than 126 million Prime members in the US and each of these users spend on an annual basis $1,400 per year in shopping in Amazon. And on top of that, they pay $120 per year in Prime membership. Now onto Google. They came in at about $300 per user per year. But since it's mostly self-serve advertising revenue, the margins are probably very high. Yeah, that's right. Google has almost 90% of the search engine market share in the US, which translates to almost 250 million users in the US alone. Well then, we've come to the end of our podcast. Thanks, Darwin, for sharing your insights on these topics. My pleasure, Kai. Just in closing, though, the biggest takeaway for me, there is now certainty of who will govern and how they will govern. For investors, for business operators, that is the biggest thing. The worst situation for the market is uncertainty of the outcome of the presidency, which hopefully the U.S. has avoided. To our listeners, we hope that you have enjoyed listening to this episode. For more insights into markets and emerging technologies, please visit our blog at vested.co.in. As always, take care and stay safe.